We are back. And shame on me for not mentioning at the top of the program that the Sacramento News and Review, and I suppose by extension the Chico News and Review, which actually came first, and the Reno News and Review, I guess they're celebrating an anniversary. I think it's their 40th. We spoke with the founder of the News and Review, Jeff Von Kainel, many years ago on this program, telling the tale of how they succeeded and continue to report on the kind of items that, well, frankly, should be reported on. Owing to some scheduling difficulties, uh, we were not able to reach out to, uh, to Jeff Von Kainel for this week's program, but we intend to do better next week. Frankly, we don't always agree with the positions taken in the publication. That's to be expected. Like Voltaire, we think we should defend to, the, defend to the death their right to publish and continue their tendency to try and speak truth to power. Anyway, I genuinely feel bad about this, but we'll hopefully make up for it on next week's program. By odd coincidence, well, maybe it's not so odd, uh, this radio show is broadcast terrestrially both in the Sacramento region through the good offices of KDVS, and also in Chico, where the SNNR began on KZFR. We're enormously pleased to be affiliated with both stations. And you know, Mr. Miller, I, I still hope we can foster some, you know, better collaboration between these two entities in the future. That's a, a, a gap we might be able to help bridge. Anyway, we ended the segment uh, bagging on, on tech, and, well, we're of course not through with that. NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me program, which is generally pretty enjoyable, had among their fake news questions uh, uh, an item about, well, you know you know how it is. They propose a news item and then three people tell a story and two of them are lying. A contestant has to figure out who's got the real story. In this instance, the real story was about the knucklehead in the California State Legislature that wants all of our receipts in the future to be electronic. Now, we admit, you know, when you come walking out of fries with a, <laughs> with a strip of paper about a yard long, that can be a bit annoying. But with an electronic receipt, how is that guy going to verify what you got in your bag as being what you just bought? Oh, I'm sure there'll be a way, but isn't it simple just to check the paper and then have you go out to your car? Is it really that big of a deal? And of course, the assumption here is that everybody in the universe has a way to receive an email receipt. A further assumption is that everybody wants their devices to be filled with electronic receipts, which they can then put aside in a file or delete, just like so you can take your paper receipt and just crumple it up and throw it away. Anyway, we think it's a dumbass idea. I do anyway. Mr. McMillan apparently loathes paper receipts. Oh. You have the option of getting a paper receipt if you want it. Right. And if the peasants are rioting because they have no bread, we can just let them eat cake. Of course. Yeah, uh, yeah. And someone also noticed along the way that the lawmakers and advocates... The poor are noting that this idea of having a cashless economy is somewhat exclusionary. To quote for a piece from Bloomberg News by Olga Karif and Christina Gmelich, Rebecca Esparza works with homeless people and having once lived in a shelter herself knows what it's like to navigate the U.S. economy if you don't have much money. For most of her clients, cash is king because they lack access to the financial tools many Americans take for granted, like 
a checking account, debit cards, and payment apps. Esparza worries that the growing number of cashless stores and restaurants around the country will further marginalize low-income people at a time when inequality is already the highest in more than a half century. Tell you right now, yours truly will not do business with anything that is cashless, period. Whenever possible, I will also avoid the automatic checkouts in various stores because that's just putting a checker out of work and making, you know, helping the corporate bottom line. Yeah, it can be more convenient at times, but I'm not buying it, pun intended. And in other stupid tech ideas, we have this. Article in New York Times by Ellen Rosen, noting that the skies aren't full of drones yet, but don't rule them out. The subheadline is, reality doesn't live up to hype. Article starts off by noting that if you've been worrying that drones would be filling the skies over your head, dropping packages off day after day at your neighbor's house, leaving food on doorsteps, or photographing your every move, you can now relax a little. At least, for now. The hype over commercial drones is, so far, largely just that. One of the people who contributed to that hype was Jeff Bezos. Jeez, is that why the Saudis are looking into him? In a 60 Minutes interview back in 2013, he predicted that the deliveries by drones would become commonplace within five years. Unfortunately, he has missed that mark. Here's a paragraph I love from the article. Test programs around the world that use the technology for life-saving pharmaceuticals, as well as for food, and even coffee, are attempting to prove that delivery by drones is not only safe, but efficient and environmentally sound. Yes, if only we had some way to make a speedy delivery of that diphtheria serum, or perhaps bring food to people in need, or a refreshing cup of joe. Anyway, we've already reported this program about the, uh, the, the problems caused by drones operated by knuckleheads uh, near airports, which have caused many to shut down because they simply don't know what a drone will do. One thing you hope it won't do is to get sucked into the intake of the jet of the plane you're taking off on. Anyway, I've teed off on this in the past. I, I don't want to do it again today. We just think this is another idea that needs more thinking through. And perhaps a lot of deferment, shall we say. That was the word that Nancy Pelosi used the one time I was in a room with her. I was in the room with her because she was addressing a bunch of attendees of the California Democratic Party convention some years back. George W. Bush had made some suggestions about how it is maybe we want to go out there to Mars while naturally, you know, committing no, none of NASA's resources to do likewise. Pelosi strode in the room, announced that George W. Bush wants to send us to Mars. This can be deferred. The way she said it, I think she meant dumped in the wastebasket when she used the word deferred. All right, as part of follow-up on our citation on last week's program that Fox News referred to Donald Trump's proposed cutting off of aid to Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador as part of a headline reading, Trump cuts aid to three Mexican countries. It should be noted that quite a few fact-checkers have looked into this in the, in the wake of that pronounced by Fox News and have confirmed that there is in fact only one Mexican country. And yes, that would be Mexico. You have to confess, both Mr. Mellon and I do have a certain weakness for the Mexican hat dance. <laughs> By that we mean the music, not actually dancing on Mexican hats. But anyway, south of the border, down Mexico Way, 
Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador, Mexico's new president, known to them and, and us as AMLO, is evidently a keen amateur historian, and uh, it was noted that he's on pretty firm political ground when last month he demanded that Felipe VI, Spain's current king, and Pope Francis publicly apologize to Mexico for the conquest. AMLO was speaking on the 500th anniversary of Hernán Cortés's first landing in Mexico in Tabasco, his home state. His remarks evidently caused a storm in Spain, partly because a defensive Spanish nationalism has been revived by Catalan separatism. Anyway, we'll see if an apology is forthcoming by anybody. Speaking of conquest, and how's that for a segue, we recommend a hair-raising cover story from our favorite science magazine, New Scientist. The cover story was titled, The Tribe That Rewrote History. Subheadline: DNA reveals the untold story of the ultimate Stone Age conquerors. Like I say, this is a pretty hair-raising tale. Here's how it starts. The iconic stones at Stonehenge were erected 4,500 years ago, although the monument's original purpose is still disputed. It's an observatory. It's not disputed. We now know that within a few centuries, it became a memorial to a vanished people. By then, almost every Briton from the south coast of England to the northeast tip of Scotland had been wiped out by incomers. It isn't clear exactly why they disappeared so rapidly, but a picture of the people who replaced them is emerging. The migrants' ultimate source was a group of livestock herders called the Yamnaya, who occupied the Eurasian steppe north of the Black Sea and the Caucasus Mountains. Britain wasn't their only destination. Between 5,000 and 4,000 years ago, the Vamnaya and their descendants colonized swaths of Europe, leaving a genetic legacy that persists to this day. Anyway, how it is this group was so successful is being debated, and how they spread is still being worked out. This is a story we should talk about, but we should do it in the future when we know a little bit more. This article doesn't quite uh, explain the details I would like before we launch into it. So, Mr. McMillan, make a note of this, would you? We're going to come back and talk about the Yamnaya. They conquered Neolithic Europe, and no, we're not from a Mexican country. Aww. All right, we mentioned at the top of the program we want to talk about this new evidence about the day the Earth died 63 million years ago. No time like the present. Actually, let's defer this a moment, because we have other fascinating good news from the fossil record. According to The Week magazine, a mind-blowing haul of fossils that include dozens of species never before seen has been discovered in China, offering a glimpse of the sheer diversity of life on Earth 500 million years ago. The new site, called Quinjiang, sits at the banks of the Danshui River in southern China. It is one of only a handful of sites worldwide that offers a glimpse into the Cambrian explosion, the massive burst in animal diversity at the dawn of animal life. Paleontologists have so far unearthed 4,300 fossils representing 101 new species, 53 of them new. The creatures, which were likely entombed and preserved by an underwater mudslide 518 million years ago, include primitive forms of jellyfish, worms, and arthropods. The animals are so well preserved that their soft tissues, including muscles, guts, and gills, are still visible. Joanna Wolfe, a Harvard paleontologist who wasn't involved in the study, told National Geographic 
that most fossil localities throughout all of time are going to preserve the shelly things, the hard things. But the fossils at Qingjiang give you anatomy. They are the best of the best. And rivaling that best of the best is what graduate student Robert De Palma, still working on his Ph.D., discovered some years back in the Hell Creek Formation in America's Badlands. Hell's Creek has outcrops in parts of North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, and Wyoming. It contains some of the most storied dinosaur beds in the world. The New Yorker article by Douglas Preston describes how, in August of 2013, he received an email from graduate student Robert De Palma, whom he never met, but had corresponded with ever since De Palma had read a novel that Preston had written centering on the discovery of a fossilized Tyrannosaurus rex killed by the KT impact. Now, they've renamed it somewhat. They still call it the KT boundary because it marks the dividing line between the Cretaceous period, which was the end of the dinosaurs, and what used to be called the Tertiary period, which is the rise of mammals. That's us. That's the last 63 million years. Apparently, the Tertiary while I wasn't looking, has been <laughs> redefined as the Paleogene, although they still use the term KT. Now, when I was a young boy, first learning about dinosaurs, they showed pictures of these marvelous creatures in these colorful books made for children and, and explained that, well, yeah, they're gone. They died out. We don't know why. Maybe conditions changed on Earth. They couldn't keep up, which actually is probably true <laughs> if you think about it. But this requires a radical change in conditions because dinosaurs had been with us since the Triassic period, I believe, 400 plus million years ago, and they stuck around for hundreds of millions of years. But one day, poof, seemingly, they were gone. Well, actually, that wasn't the view back in the day. And some people still don't think that's what happened. But to return to the article, it notes that in the late Cretaceous, Widespread volcanoes spewed vast quantities of gas and dust into the atmosphere. It, the air contained far higher levels of carbon dioxide than the air that we breathe now. It was hot back then, by the way, with all that CO2. The climate was tropical. The planet was perhaps entirely free of ice. And to solve the mystery of what happened at this change... Scientists have been searching for fossil deposits as close to that KT boundary as possible. The article notes that one of the central mysteries of paleontology is the so-called three-meter problem. In a century and a half of assiduous searching, almost no dinosaur remains have been found in the layers three meters or about nine feet below the KT boundary, a depth representing many thousands of years. Consequently, numerous paleontologists have argued the dinosaurs were on their way to extinction long before this supposed asteroid attack of the Earth. should be noted that other scientists have countered this three-meter problem by noting that it merely reflects how hard it is to find fossils. They felt that sooner or later, a scientist will discover dinosaurs much closer to the moment of destruction. Back to the phone call in 2013. Robert De Palma called to say he discovered a site like the one he'd imagined in his novel, one which contained, among other things, direct victims of the catastrophe. Preston notes, at first I was skeptical. De Palma was a scientific nobody, a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Kansas. He said he had found a site with no institutional backing and no collaborators. 
Preston says, I thought he was likely exaggerating, or he might even be crazy. Noting that paleontology has more than its share of unusual people. But he was intrigued enough to get on a plane to North Dakota to see for himself. At the time of the asteroid impact, the Hell's Creek landscape consisted of steamy, subtropical lowlands and floodplains along the shores of an inland sea. It's hard to imagine the central part of the United States as being underwater, but 63 million years ago, it looked quite different. The land teemed with life, and the conditions were excellent for fossilization, with seasonal floods and meandering rivers that rapidly buried dead animals and plants. Dinosaur hunters first discovered these rich fossil beds in the late 19th century. In 1902, Barnum Brown, a flamboyant dinosaur hunter who worked for the American Museum of Natural History, found the first Tyrannosaurus rex, causing a worldwide sensation. As it turns out, the Hell Creek Formation spanned the Cretaceous and Paleogene periods, and paleontologists had known for at least a half century that an extinction had occurred then, because dinosaurs were found below, but never above, the KT layer. This was true not only in Hell's Creek, but all over the world. For many years, scientists believed the KT extinction was no great mystery. They figured over millions of years, volcanism, climate change, and other events gradually killed off many forms of life. But in the late 1970s, as you probably know, dear listener, a young geologist named Walter Alvarez and his Nobel laureate father, Louis Alvarez, nuclear physicist, discovered that the KT layer was laced with an unusually high amounts of a rare metal, iridium. It turns out that meteorites contain a lot more iridium than do rocks here on Earth. I up the percentages once, but I don't remember them. But it's not something like, you know, 20% in a meteorite versus, you know, one thousandth of a percent on Earth rocks. Nevertheless, Extraterrestrial material is definitely iridium-rich, and by carefully measuring these layers around the Earth that indicated that KT boundary, there was no doubt this was an iridium-enriched layer. They published a piece in Science in 1980, but most paleobiologists rejected the idea that a sudden random encounter with space junk drastically altered the evolution of life on Earth. But I remember back in the 1980s, they kept looking for a crater that would fit, one that was the right size and the right age. And in 1991, the smoking gun was announced, the discovery of an impact crater buried under thousands of feet of sediment in the Yucatan Peninsula of exactly the right age and of the right size and geochemistry to have caused a worldwide cataclysm. The crater and the asteroid were named Chicxulub, after a small Mayan town near the epicenter. It should be noted that one of the authors of the 1991 paper, David, David Kring, was so frightened by what he learned of the impact's destructive nature that he became a leading voice in calling for a system to identify and neutralize threatening asteroids. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, NASA currently has a space probe poking around at Bennu, an asteroid that does cross the orbit of the Earth. Forward-thinking people are looking ahead for the day when something may have us in our sights and would like to prevent it from smacking into us. This is a worthy goal. It is my hope that Nancy Pelosi wouldn't want to see that one deferred. By the way, we don't have it in for Nancy Pelosi. We, we kind of like most of what she does. She with her San Francisco values. Anyway, back in 2004... Robert De Palma, at that time a 22-year-old paleontology undergraduate, 
began his excavations at a small site in the Hell Creek Formation. The site had once been a pond, and the deposit consisted of a very thin layer of sediment. Eight years later, while looking for new pond deposits, he heard that a private collector had stumbled upon an unusual site on a cattle ranch near Bowman, North Dakota. The collector who found this site thought the site was a bust. It was packed with fish fossils, but they were so delicate that they crumbled into tiny flakes as soon as they met the air. The fish were encased in layers of damp, cracked mud and sand that had never solidified. It was so soft it could be dug with a shovel or pulled apart by hand. The collector showed De Palma the site and told him he was welcome to it. De Palma told Preston I was immediately disappointed. He was hoping for a site like the one he'd excavated earlier, an ancient pond with fine-grained fossil-bearing layers that spanned many seasons and years. Instead, everything had been deposited in a single flood at this site, but as he poked around, he saw potential. The flood had entombed everything immediately, so specimens were exquisitely preserved. He found many complete fish, which were rare in the Hell Creek Formation. He figured he could remove them intact if he worked with painstaking care. When he started his preliminary excavations, he started shoveling off the layers of soil above where he'd found the fish before, and this is described as overburden, typically material deposited long after the specimen lived. There's little in it to interest a paleontologist, and so it's usually discarded. But as soon as De Palma started digging, he noticed grayish-white specks in the layers which looked like grains of sand, but which, under the hand lens, proved to be tiny spheres and elongated droplets. De Palma recalled thinking, Holy crap, these look like microtectites. Microtectites are the globs of glass that form when molten rock is blasted into the air by an asteroid impact and fall back to Earth in a drizzle. The site appeared to contain microtectites by the million. The site contained an abundance of plant material as well. And the fossils were unusual. Most fossils end up being squished flat by the pressure of the overlying stone, but here everything was three-dimensional, including the fish, having been encased in sediment all at once, which acted as a support. If the site was what he'd hoped, he'd made the most important paleontological discovery of the new century. And while the jury is still out on whether it truly is that, the evidence seems to be stacking up that this fossil bed was created at the exact moment of the asteroid impact. Well, the exact immediate aftermath of the impact, more correctly. By this, we're, we're talking about minutes to hours. The fossils are extraordinary. They contain a mixture of freshwater fish and saltwater fish. A marine reptile turned up on a riverbank, at least several miles inland from the nearest sea. Marks in the sediment were uncovered that appeared to be from something falling in from the sky and plunking down to the mud. Fossils have been found in the past from hailstorms, but as you, as you might imagine, that's pretty rare in the fossil record. As De Palma shaved the layers back in this small crater, he found the thing that had done it. It wasn't a hailstone. Well, that would have melted long ago, of course but a small white sphere at the bottom of the crater. It was a tektite, about three millimeters in diameter, the fallout from an ancient asteroid impact. Here's a bit of geology I did not know. Glass turns to clay over millions of years. These tektites were clay, but they still had some glassy cores. The microtektites he'd found earlier might have been carried there by water, but these had been trapped where they fell on what De Palma believed must have been a very bad day. 
When I saw that, I knew this wasn't just any flood deposit, said De Palma. They weren't just near the KT boundary. This whole site is the KT boundary. Anyway, they're finding feathers at this site. Feathers that apparently were once worn by dinosaurs. Microtectites were found in the gills of the fossilized fish, indicating that in this catastrophic mess, the fish had sucked them up in their dying moments. Fossilized trees have turned up with bits of amber in them. Amber is preserved tree resin and often contains traces of whatever was in the air at the time, which is, when they get around to analyzing that, going to be pretty interesting. They will also be able to learn a lot from analyzing the pollen and the diatomaceous particles. By the way, everywhere you look on planet Earth, when you find this KT boundary, there appears to be lots of soot because the world's forests burn down. Some of the amber apparently has microtectites stuck in it, which is an unprecedented scientific bonanza. It does appear that this is going to check out, and it does appear that in the badlands of North Dakota, they have found, finally, evidence of the exact moments, really, of that asteroid impact on Earth. We're going to learn a lot about what can go wrong on planet Earth when uh, these fossils are all adequately studied. And I got to tell you, I'm pretty excited by this. This is where geology meets biology meets astronomy. And we're fans of all three subjects here at Radio Parallax. By the way, I know that a lot of you listening to this program are scientists because you've written me over the years. And I expect that some of you out there know some details about this fascinating find. And we would like for you to share them with us by dropping us a line at info at radioparallax.com. By the way, it's not clear the dinosaurs owe their demise simply to the asteroid. The Deccan Traps, large deposits of lava on the Indian subcontinent were something like half a million square miles or buried under like, I don't know, something like a half mile of lava. Oh, that, that, that kind of messed up conditions here on planet Earth for a while. And Mr. Millen suggests as we close that we do pay an homage to Gary Larson and his famous cartoon showing an assortment of dinosaurs lighting up cigarettes, hiding behind a palm tree which he captioned, the real reason the dinosaurs went extinct. Smoking in the boys room. Smoking in the boys room. This has been Radio Parallax, produced as always by Edward McMillan. We'll see you next week, hopefully with the founder of the Sacramento and Chico News and Review, Jeff Von Canel. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you then.